Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. And I've titled this sermon, Turning From and Turning To. And this is just part one, so come back next week for part two. There's a survey that states that Christianity as a religion is estimated to be about 31.5% of the world population. This is roughly 2.4 billion people. This means anywhere from one-third to about one-half of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. But as you look at the life of professing believers, you will see that there is no difference between professing born-again believers and the rest of the world. Rampant sexual immorality, pornography, high divorce rates mock these so-called professing believers. A survey of the entertainment choices reveals that there isn't much difference in the entertainment choice between believers and the rest of cultures, the rest of the culture. Uh, in fact, many professing believers even see no difference between other religions, and the consensus is that all religions are equally good and true. Some years ago, I had a conversation with a Christian coach who stated that he believes in Christian reincarnation. Many of the professing believers in evangelical churches today even question the existence of absolute moral truth. And as Paul was writing to the believers of the Ephesian church, Ephesus was one of the most depraved, evil cities in Asia Minor. The worship in Ephesus centered around the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, she was the sex goddess, known, Ephesus was known for temple priestesses, temple prostitutes, singers and dancers, leading people to worship Diana. Ephesus was a, a, a vile cesspool of sin. And, and it is out of this that the believers had come out, it is from this culture that the believers had come out that Paul is writing these words. He is warning the Ephesians in, in chapter 4, verse 17, that they should not get sucked back into immorality. That they need to put their old lifestyle away and walk according to the new man. And in the same way, we need to be walking worthy of our calling. The text that we read says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer, there's a stop there, you no longer walk as the Gentiles do, the people of the world do, in the futility of their minds and the uselessness of their minds. Why? Because they are darkened in their understanding, separated, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them, spiritual ignorance. Due to the hardness of the heart. 
And you see that they have become callous and given themselves a sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We see three headings come out of this passage. We see the condition of the unbeliever in verse 17, the cause of their unbelief in verse 18, and the consequence of their unbelief in verse 19. Let's look at the condition of the unbeliever in verse 17. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. When a person becomes a Christian, we become a new creation. We, we are born again. We are given a new nature. We are transformed. We put our old patterns and practices away and we put on new practices. We put off our old clothes and put on the new clothes that belong to the new man. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old is gone and behold, all things are become new. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is exhorting the believer in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Because a realization of who we are now in the present world should cause us to look at our past because we no longer belong to that. We are separated from our past. I mean, this is, isn't this what Paul states in Romans chapter 6, verse 13? He says, do not present yourself, your members, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourself to God as those who have been brought out from death to life. We have been taken out of the old, vile cesspool of sin. And we've been put into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So let's live like we belong here. So as we come to Ephesians 4.17, Paul states, he begins by saying, Now this I say. If you're reading from the New American Standard, it says, This I say therefore. The NIV states, So I tell you this. Paul is stating that based on what I have told you so far. What is it that he has told us so far? As we look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, chapter 2, chapter 3, we've seen that he has reminded us of our calling, our position in Christ, that there's no longer a Jew or a Gentile, that when you become a Christian, you become one new man in Jesus Christ. He has reminded us of the gifts that He has given us as Christ went up to heaven and that, that these gifts were to equip us, to edify us, to, to enable us to live a life for His glory. That we have these gifts, now we got to speak the truth in love. And so Paul says, because of all these things I've told you so far, he continues... He says, I testify in the Lord. 
What does Paul mean by the word testify? It is as if the apostle is invoking a witness. It's like a man is put on the witness in the witness box and he testifies. He's making an emphatic declaration. He's appealing to something more authoritative. So Paul is stating that what I'm going to say now is not something that I'm saying out of my own wisdom or personal opinion. I'm bearing witness to something. He continues, he says, I'm testifying in the Lord. So he's testifying as someone who is in communion with the Lord. He is delivering something that's authenticated by the Lord himself. Paul is speaking with the mind of the Lord. He's using the full authority that he's been given as an apostle. So Paul wants the people to know that what Paul is going to say now, from verse 17 onwards, is that they're, not, they're listening to the voice of the Lord. They're listening to something authoritative. There is no room for disagreement or misinterpretation. Let's move on. What is he testifying to? He puts it in the negative first. Look at verse 17. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Listen, my beloved, we are living in a day and age where we do not like negatives. We only want to hear positives. Positive sermons. Positive music. Positive encouragement, positive truth, positive, positive, positive. And we do not like negative criticism, negative exhortations. In short, we do not like to be told what to do. And here Paul, from the get-go, is saying, you must not walk as the Gentiles walk. The verb walk is in the present tense. Meaning, don't walk or fall back in the, into the habitual practices of the Gentiles. The word Gentile there can mean two things. Gentiles can be used as, a, as nationally or ethnically to a race of people. The Jew and the Gentile. The Gentile can also be used, religiously speaking, to a group of people who do not know God, the true God. And so here, Paul is referring to people who are unbelievers. The believers in Paul's days found it very difficult to live differently from the unbelieving world around them. They were constantly bombarded, lambasted with the culture around them. The same is the case today. The world is continually blasting us or parading its culture in front of us. And we look at the media, the music, the fashion, the social media. It's, we are constantly bombarded with that. 
John MacArthur states, The problem isn't getting the world to live like Christians, it is getting the Christians to stop living like the world. This is what we read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, Love not the world or the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are to be unique. We are to be different from the rest of the world. And the temptation is for us to go back to the place where we came from. Paul says, no, don't do that. In other words, stop being a mirror of the world. Stop mimicking the world. Are you living different lives? Are your ways different from the ways of the world? Are you walking differently from the world? Or is your lifestyle mimicking the culture? When Paul states that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, he is meaning to say that at one point of time, we were all walking like the Gentiles. This is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. That you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. And verse 3 goes on to say, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 reads, We were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasure. And he goes on to say, We were spending our lives in malice and envy, Hateful and hating others. But now, you are a believer. You have been pulled out from the kingdom of darkness into the light. So we are no longer to walk like them. We don't live in the sewer anymore. Why? Because we have been transformed. We have a new beginning. We have, we've been radically transformed. We are a new creation. D.L. Moody wrote, he says, If I walk with the world, I can't walk with God. So as we continue to look at verse 17, what is it that we are no longer to walk in? And we see that the walk of the Gentiles are in the futility of their minds. The word futility means emptiness. It means aimless, useless, pointless, lacking direction, purposelessness, hopeless, non-productive, utterly vain. It's like a soap bubble. Remember those soap bubbles that you used to blow up into the air and then you start chasing it and finally it breaks and there's nothing? You know, King Solomon, 
rich king in the Bible, rich man in the Bible. He had everything that he could hope for. Knowledge, wealth, music, art, women, houses, beautiful gardens. But none of this brought satisfaction to King Solomon. It was all futility. There was no lasting value. A futile life leads nowhere. It's a life that never satisfies. It is to live for selfish indulgence, fleeting pleasure, without any regard to consequence of it, whether in this life or eternity. It is to live in the philosophies of the world that ignores God. And Paul is saying here that we should not live as if God did not exist. Don't live as if Christ did not die for your sin. Don't live as if there is no heaven or hell. Don't live in the futility of your mind. Why? Because it accomplishes nothing. Performs nothing. You gain nothing. J. Vernon McGee writes, It's an empty illusion of the life that thinks that there is satisfaction in sin. It is an illusion. People for living futile lives have no understanding of life, no understanding of death, nothing to cheer beyond the death and the grave. Please come back with me to Ephesians 4.17. It says, In the futility of their minds. The word mind there refers to the entire personality of man, the thinking, the intellectual thinking. This is where thinking happens. The entire personality. And the unbelievers thinking, Paul says, is futile. And that's what an unbeliever thinks. Every man thinks that he's right in his own eyes. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 2. And our rightness is derived from our own fleshly desires. Our lusts are deceitful hearts. But that's not how a believer is. A believer has the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 16 says, You have the mind of Christ. And how do you have the mind of Christ? Through the word of God. But not so the unbeliever. The unbeliever, Paul says, it is his nature. He walks in the futility of their minds. This is why as believers, we've been told in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we got to renew our minds. And the way you and I renew our minds is through the word of God. But the unbeliever does not have a mind that can be renewed. The mind of the unbeliever is futile. Given to futility. The question is, why do people live such a life? Why do people live a life that promises so much, but in the end, it gives you nothing? It's utter hopelessness. Why is it that human beings in their right mind should be attracted to this kind of a life? The reason is given by the Apostle Paul in verse 18. 
And this is where we come to the second heading, the cause of the unbelief. We can break 18 down, verse 18 down into four phrases. It says they are darkened, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated or separated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance in them and because of their hardness of heart. Let's look at the first phrase, their heart, their understanding is darkened. The verb darkened there in verse 18 is in the perfect tense. And plus, it's a passive voice. When you think about a perfect tense, it's something that happened in the past and the results continue. It's a passive voice, meaning the effects of darkening did not just come from their own self. Something outside of them darkened them. Let's look at that, darkening. It was a result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. When man fell in the Garden of Eden, they were blinded. And the blindness continues to exist even today. They are spiritually blind. So man is incapable of knowing God. Incapable of understanding spiritual truth. Why? Because they have been blinded since the Garden of Eden at the fall and the results continue. This is what we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 21. It says, their foolish hearts were darkened. So when they fell in the Garden of Eden, the light went out spiritually. They were not able to see the light. This is what we read in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 14 through 16. It says, but their minds were darkened. But to this day, even when the old covenant is read, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when they turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. And Paul says this is the reason, this is the very reason why a Jew would listen to Scripture every Sabbath and he does not see the meaning of Scriptures. There's a mental fog. They think they know the truth. They spend their time discussing the truth, talking about it, but they do not see the truth. Why? Because they have blinders on. There is a veil in front of their eyes. And this is the same reason, my beloved, why people can come to church Sunday after Sunday, sit in the pew, the same pew, Sunday after Sunday, sit under the preaching of God's word and not be converted. Why? Because a veil lies over their eyes. And what is the reason for this veil? We see the reason in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says, And even if our gospel 
is veiled. That means covered. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, of people who are perishing, the God of this world, it's a small g God. The God of this world has blinded. Do you see that blinding? Has blinded the minds, the mind of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the truth. Which is the light of the gospel. So the unbeliever has a veil over their eyes. Why? Because Satan has blinded their eyes. Their understanding is darkened. And that veil is not removed until and unless the gospel of Jesus Christ, until and unless Christ has removed the veil. And people who are blinded to the truth of the gospel, the Bible says, are living in darkness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5, we read, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So if you are born again, and if you belong to the kingdom of His Son, you are in the light. You are not in the darkness. This is why Paul was given the commission in Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Let me read that commission for you. This was the commission given to the Apostle Paul. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was given the commission that he would go into the world, open the eyes of the people, that they may turn from darkness and turn to light. This is the goal of our preaching. The goal of our preaching is not to entertain people. It's not to make people feel good. It's not to motivate them. It's not to make them feel happy. It is to turn people from darkness to light. The believer is in the light. The unbeliever is in darkness. Their understanding is darkened. This is why the unbelievers do not and will not see the truth. Unless the Lord opens their eyes. I mean, you can argue the truth with them. You can present the truth. You can reason with them the truth. You can present ten arguments for the existence of God. But unless and until the darkness is not lifted off, unless and until their eyes are not opened, they cannot and they will not see the truth. This is why you can have two people come to church, sit right next to each other, and one can be ecstatic about the Word of God and say, Hallelujah, praise God. And the other could just yawn and say, What a boring sermon that is. Because only God and God alone can open the blind eyes and remove the darkness. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit is the means of regeneration, is a source of regeneration. And we will not be able to see the truth unless the Holy Spirit has opened our blind eyes. Nothing short of the power of God can bring a revival in the life of a sinner. This is what 
Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six reads, let light shine out of darkness. That light has shone in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is why we must be on our knees praying for salvation of people. This is what even as I'm preaching the sermon, I'm praying, Lord, open the hearts and minds of people that do not know the truth. The Lord has to do his work. You remember the story in Acts chapter 16? As Paul was preaching the sermon by the riverbed. And there were many women. But the Bible says that there were many women gathered there outside the city. And Paul spoke to every one of them with the same sincerity. Earning that every one of them would come to know the Savior. He prayed, he, he preached the same message. But only one of them came to salvation. Folks, at the same time, let me tell you. Unbelievers have a darkened understanding. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the people. But they won't come to Christ. The responsibility lies on them as well because they love their sin. John chapter 3. Verses 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness. Do you see that? People love darkness. Sinners love darkness. Rather than the light. Because their works were evil. They, they, they are so settled in their evil. As one preacher said, the biblical picture is not sinners crying out, Oh, if only I could see the truth. No, they are partying in the dark. They don't want the light to expose their sin. They are settled in their sin because they love their sin. The Bible says they are darkened. In their understanding. Let's look at the next phrase. Not only they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. There are two words for the life word life in the Greek. One is the word bios. Which means life that you air that you breathe. Physical life. There is another word for Greek, life in the Greek. It's called zoe. It is the life that comes from God. The life that God gives. And Paul uses the word Zoe here. So it says they are alienated. That means they are separated. By the way, the word alienated occurs only two times in the New Testament. 
once in Ephesians chapter 2. Actually, three times once here, and another one in Colossians. Alienated means separated. They're separated from the Zoe of God. They're separated from the life of God. That means they do not have eternal life. An unbeliever is excluded from the life of God. A man who is without Christ, a woman who is without Christ, does not have eternal life. Because they are separated, alienated from the life of God. By the way, the word alienated is again a present tense, a perfect tense. That means something happened in the past and the results continue on a permanent basis. They were alienated once and for all. Unless Christ opens their eyes. It's a passive voice. That means someone outside of them has done the action. And they were alienated because of their sin. Alienated from the life of God. So becoming a Christian is not a matter of doing a set of good things. It's not following a moral code. In the late 18th century, or sorry, early 18th century, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield were part of a club called the Holy Club. The goal was to be holy through the reading of the scriptures, and they would read the New Testament in Greek. But none of these young men were born again. It was not until George Whitfield read a book that showed him that he needed to be born again. The book told him that he could go to church regularly, read his book, read his Bible regularly, take the sacraments obediently, and still not be born again. It immediately dawned on Whitfield that he was not born again, and he was spiritually bankrupt. It was only then he was awakened, and his eyes opened to the truth of salvation, and he became a Christian. Beloved, are you having the life of God in you? Do you have eternal life? Or are you alienated from the life of God? Are you enjoying eternal life? Have you found peace and rest for your soul? Or are you restless like the waves of the ocean? Are you in turmoil? Or have you found rest in Christ through eternal life? The question is, why is the unbeliever alienated from the life of God? The answer is given there in verse 18, in the next two phrases. One, because of the ignorance that is in them. Second, due to the hardness of heart. Let's look at the ignorance that is in them. The phrase, when you look at the ignorance that is in them, the ignorance means they are without knowledge. And what are they exactly ignorant of? The ignorant of God's majesty, His eternity, ignorant of His justice, His righteousness, His love, His holiness, His purity, His sovereignty. They're ignorant that if they were to die today, that they would be set apart to eternal destruction. 
They are ignorant of the fact that they are appointed to die once and after that comes judgment. They are ignorant about God's character, God's attributes. They are ignorant about God. But it's not that they're truly ignorant about God. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 23. You find in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then verse 19 goes on to say, What can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. So it's not that they're truly ignorant. It says they are, they know it. Because what is known about God, they have, God has shown it to them. And what is it that God has shown it to them? His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. So they are not ignorant truly. What they are ignorant about is that they have a full-blown, deliberate refusal to obey God. It's a willful ignorance. They are willfully ignoring God. The question arises, why are they willfully ignoring God? Well, it goes deep into their personality. It goes deep into who they are. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, when man fell into sin, it was woven into them. Because of one man's sin, sin entered the whole world. And so people today reject Christ and live in ignorance of Christ. Because they want to reject God and everything that God has to offer. They do not want to please God's commands. They want to be autonomous. They hide behind the excuse that the Bible has intellectual problems. You go to an unbeliever and you talk to them about Christ and the gospel and they'll bring out problems of how could God create the earth in seven days, six days? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And if you were to go tell them, brother, sister, let me tell you, I could give you probably some, some reasons, some valid reasons for your intellectual problems. Hoping that they would be convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. But they will come up with new intellectual problems. And behind the smokescreen of their rejection and their intellectual problem is their preoccupation with their licentious lifestyle. They love their sin. And invariably they will not submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Why? Because they love their sin. The problem with their unbelief is not intellectual knowledge. It's not intellectual problems. The, the problem with their unbelief is their deep-seated love for sin. According to Romans chapter 1. Paul then continues on the next phrase. 
in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, due to the hardness of the heart. Paul is saying the heart is hard, meaning the heart is calloused. So the reason they are in spiritual ignorance is because of the hardness of their heart. It means calloused as in thickening of the skin. And this is what happens to the human heart. The covering, the lining has become so thick and hard that the heart does not feel anything anymore. The heart which is a seat of affections and the emotions does not feel anything. It's become morally insensitive. It's no longer sensitive to the conscience. And as long as you bask in your sin, as long as you enjoy your sin, it will continue to petrify, it will continue to callous your heart and make you insensitive to sin. This is seen in the parable of the sower. Where you, Jesus spoke about the parable of the sower in which there was stony ground and the seed was sown on the stony ground and the path and the birds of the air came and ate it up. This is why people can sit Sunday after Sunday, listen to the gospel, and not be affected by it. This is why people can read the Bible from cover to cover, maybe read the Bible through the year, every single year, and not be affected by it. It is because of the hardness of man's heart. This is why Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will give you a new heart, and I will take away your stony heart. A stony heart is a hard heart. It's a calloused heart. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful and it can harden you. And we need to be careful because of the hardening of the heart. The heart is the center of everything. The heart is a wellsprings of life. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart. And, and if you continue to persist in your disobedience, it will lead to the hardening of the heart. And so when you look at Proverbs chapter, I mean Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, you see that they are darkened to their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. And ignorance that is not because they have lack of knowledge, but because they enjoy their sin, they push God away. And it says, due to the hardness of heart. Let's come to the third heading. And the third heading is a consequence of their unbelief. We have seen the condition of the unbeliever in verse 17. We've seen the cause of the unbelief in verse 18. And now we're looking at the consequence of their unbelief. What happens to them? Verse 19 says, they have become callous. 
and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word callous is a rare word. It's used only here in the New Testament. King James says, given past feeling, NIV states, lost all sensitivity, meaning they have become insensitive, they have become apathetic. That's what the word callous means. They have no fear of consequence. They have constantly rejected, continually rejected God, that they have become calloused to the truth. Again, it's a perfect tense, which shows it's a it's a, it's a continued and a permanent state. They do not feel the shame or the embarrassment anymore. I mean, initially when they sinned, they felt a little shame. But as they kept doing the same sin over and over and over and over again, their hearts became calloused. They, de- they, they were desensitized. They developed spiritual calluses. Verse 19 goes on to say, by the way, we're looking at the consequence. So this is what's happening to them. Keep seeing verse 19, it says, have given themselves up to sensuality. The word sensuality in the Greek is the word asilgia, means shameless, unblushing, obscenity, Indecency. It is undue freedom with no boundaries. It's doing something openly with no shame. Men try to hide their sin, but someone given to a silgia could care less of how shocking or indecent. His sin is as long as a sin satisfies his mind. The next word I want you to see in verse 19 is greedy. Meaning they are not satisfied. They want more and more of it. It's an arrogant greediness. They're not satisfied. They want to they keep doing it to the point that they're made an occupation of that sin. The next word in verse 19 is greedy to practice every kind of impurity, uncleanness. It's used to denote the condition of a dead body, decay. It refers to moral impurity, or it could refer to sexual impurity. Here it refers to moral impurity, defiling the entire sphere of one's life. This is the consequence of living as an unbeliever. We see this pattern in Psalm 1. Would you turn your Bibles to Psalm 1, please? Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you are an unbeliever, walking in the futility of your mind, then you will walk in the counsel of the wicked. You will stand in the way of sinners. You will sit in the seat of scoffers. And if you continue to do that, the consequence of their unbelief is what we have seen in Ephesians 4.19. If not, your delight will be in the law of the Lord. If you're a believer, your delight will be in the law of the Lord. And in His law, you will meditate day and night. And it says you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You can only do this if you have eternal life. Now, you're having a sad story. And by the way, it's a sober message. And as I'm giving the sober message, I don't know how else can I give it because of the seriousness of what is being said. I don't want to even make a joke and let people lose the seriousness of what is being said here. Because what we're going to see in a few moments from now, baptism, which is an outward profession of faith, happens after salvation. You and I will not be able to do that if we are not saved. By the way, we can go through an outward motion of baptism and not be saved. That's another story. But if you are truly saved, you go through the waters of baptism. It reflects that you have died to the past and you're risen again to newness of life. And that is what we will see next week. And that's why I've titled Turning From and Turning To. It would have been really sober and sad if Paul had stopped at verse 19. But he does not. Because he goes on into verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard from him. And you were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self. which belongs to the former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirits of your mind. And to put on the new self. Created out of the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. That's what happens in salvation. You will not be able to live like the new man if you're not saved. Otherwise, you'll be trying in your flesh. You'll be working hard to read your Bible. You'll work hard by coming to church. You will do all the religious things, hoping to enjoy what eternal life is all about without a heart transformation having happened. Are you born again? Has Christ so transformed your heart? As he awakened your soul. 
Has he taken the blinders off your eyes? Have you repented of your sins? Trusting in Christ for your salvation. There's nothing you can do. No good deeds that you can do to be right with God. He has done everything for you. And what you and I need to do is look up to the cross, look up to Christ, put our trust in that life-grieving sacrifice, and say, Christ, I trust in you for my salvation. And as you come to Him in repentance, repenting of your sins, turning away from your sins, Stop living like the Gentiles. Instead, live in the light of what you become. He transforms you. There's newness of life. And you'll be able to love Him and obey Him. Because then you will have the Holy Spirit living in you. To empower you. To equip you. To live that victorious Christian life. You can only turn from and turn to if you've been born again. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus was confused. Are you telling me that I need to go back into my mother's womb to be born again? He says, you being a great teacher, do you not know what I say? It's life transformation. Behavior modification without life transformation is catastrophic. It's legalism. It's just morality. Father, you are glorious. Lord, even these words that I've spoken, Lord, none of these things can do anything unless and until you do your work. I pray, Lord, that you would do your work in the lives of people in this church, that there will be salvation, there will be revival, there will be transformation inside out as a result of them putting their trust in Christ and Christ alone them. Lord, you do your work, Father. Remove the blinders. Lord, even as the word was preached in Philippi to numerous women, but you opened the heart of one woman, Father, Lydia. Father, I pray there will be many hearts open today. Not just one, but many. And even as three people out here are going to enter the tank today in recognition of the profession of faith, may there be many more that come as a result of salvation. And Lord, only you can do that. That you would use the words that are spoken here in the scriptures and the word of God and help people to put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. Through grace alone, through faith alone, for salvation. And maybe Christ over them, Christ under them, Christ around them, Christ completely protecting them. And may we live for your glory and for your honor by stopping to live like the Gentiles, instead living like your children, children of the light. 
In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children say, Amen.